Carl, and thanks for the poem. Um, kind of just put exactly how I imagine him thinking and, and struggling with this, which is we will be getting to that later on in the morning. And I uh, want to welcome you all. Thank you for coming on Memorial Day weekend. It's always great when you're able to worship on a weekend and you're on a holiday. Uh, God likes you more if you come on a holiday. Did you, I, did you know that? I didn't know if you knew that or not, but um, let's pray together. Gracious God, we rejoice the psalmist, and we say with him, Praise the Lord, all the nations. Praise him, all the people of the earth, for his unfailing love for us is powerful. The Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, uh, we pray for those who have courageously laid down their lives for the cause of freedom, for our home. May their examples of sacrifice inspire us also into selfless love, love for your son and the love of the son. Father, we ask that you bless the families of, of fallen soldiers and sailors and Marines and pilots and Air Force men and women. We ask that you fill their homes with the lives of your strength and peace. We ask that you embolden us to uh, answer the call to work for peace and justice in our communities and people around us. And that we too seek your peace in our hearts as we walk in you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. And Creator God, we, we, you who formed us out of dust, we ask you on this Pentecost Sunday to breathe in us again. We ask you to revive us, to sanctify us by the power of your Holy Spirit, to set our heart on fire with the good news of your gospel. Father, we ask that you empower us with your spirit, that we might engage in your purpose and your mission today. I pray for our church, Shepherd of the Valley. I pray for the other churches in the gorge this morning, that you send us all your spirit of wisdom and boldness as we seek to share the good news of Jesus with those who meet. Who meet. And so as, as your people, Father, we are gathered around the world today, and we celebrate the coming of your spirit and I thank you, Lord, for the beautiful, multicultural, intergenerational group that you call the church, that you call your, your, your people. We ask that you revive us, you sanctify us, and unite us, and you fill us once again. Forgive us where we've fallen short. Forgive us for the damage we may have caused with words or our deeds or even our thoughts. And Father, we're asking that you set our heart to fire again with the good news of the gospel, not just this morning, but for the rest of our lives, that we live in your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brought another clip for you this morning. I don't know why I'm getting into clips these days, but I uh, thought I'd bring one this morning. I don't know how many of you have seen all three of the, uh, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's... It still moves me. I still see scenes of it, and I choke up. I was showing Sue, and I was choking up about this, and uh, I don't know why uh, it does that, but um, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great project, uh, great books by Tolkien. Uh, I don't know if you remember it or if you've seen all three of them, but the first one starts off with this big party in the Shire with all the hobbits, 
and they're celebrating, there's, there's food, and there's uh, singing, and there's dancing, and there's storytelling for the children, there's fireworks. It's just really kind of a raucous event. It's just really glorious. And that's how it starts off. Well, it ends also with a party uh, in, in the Shire. And yet, there things are going on, and the four hobbits that have gone through this ordeal, gone through this, this harrowing event through their lives, they are gathered around the table. So we'll just uh, take a look at the clip here. I think that scene is so great because it's uh, so realistic and sad at the same time. Um, the party's going on, everybody's happy, everybody's, you know, there's clinking of mugs and all that stuff. And you look at the four hobbits on the table, and you know that they know something that no one else knows. And while they're all celebrating, it's like they return from this harrowing event, this ordeal, and life goes on as normal, you know, no, no different. And yet they look older, they look a little road-weary, and there's no clinking of mugs, just this quiet toast that they know something, and they've been through it. They've been through the struggle. They've been through the trauma. They've been through um, death and the losing of friends. And they know something that the rest of the people don't know. And it also made me think of this is Memorial Day of the same thing, of uh, veterans coming back. And we go on, life is normal, and we don't understand what they have been through as well. And I think of my own uncles who, went, who served in World War II. They never talked about it. Uh, the only story I ever heard from my Uncle Harper was how he ate a dozen eggs in one sitting in a, in a village in France because it's been so long since he had eggs. That's the only thing he ever told me about World War II. And he came back, and I think that's what this is, this is what this scene is about. And I love the contrast with Sam and Frodo. And uh, yeah, Sam finally gets the, gets the courage. I figure if he's faced Sauron and Mordor, you know, he's, he can talk to the girl of his dreams finally. He can say something to her. And so he finally has the courage to go talk to her, and he, he ends up with, this, this, uh, this, with his bride, and Frodo realizes that that's a life that will never be his. He will never have that. His wounds are too deep, and his scars are too obvious, and he will, at the end of the, at the, end of the series, he sails off to the undying world. And I just think, just about all that, it sort of makes me think that we've got to maybe... Um, change our idea of what a happy ending is like. And uh, we like the happy endings. You know, I always, I want Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan to get together. I want the bad guy to get it. You know, I want it all to be tied up in a nice, in a nice bow. But really, these happy endings are, are triumphs, and yet they come with, still they come with wounds and scars. And they're more like a pause until we get on to the next adventure. And that's kind of how I see the, some of these things coming about. And, um, it's, uh, it's just, it touches us because that's what life is. This scene touches us because that's the way life is. It's this mix of, of great sorrow and great joy all in one room. And I think that's why it, it, is, um, it, touches, it touches me anyway. And we found out that hope is really hidden in the midst of things. It's hidden in the midst of the stuff of life. And there is hope, but it's still mixed in with everything else. And, uh, and I mentioned the veterans, and, and Tolkien himself was a World War I veteran. And a lot of people think that the whole uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy was kind of his therapy of expressing how he dealt with it and how he felt 
coming back. And I think that's a pretty interesting theory. I don't know if it's true or not. And yeah, this, we're titling this sermon this morning, When Hope Runs Out. And Tolkien even says, he says, how do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there's no going back? That there are some things that time cannot mend, some hurts that go too deep that have taken hold. And I really, and, I, and having that in my mind, and, the, and I told and Sue, I said, we've got to buy the, the trilogy. We've got to buy the movies and see them again. Not the extended version. I can't sit still that long. Uh, but uh, just to see them again. And last week, I talked about uh, how we, that hope is what we do. And what I meant by that, I want to say hope is what we do as Christians. That's what we do. It's what we're in the business of hope. We're not in the business of condemning and judging and, and criticizing. We're in the business of hope. This is what we do. This is, how, this is our profession. This is our calling. And also, hope is what we do. We actually do things to nurture hope, to build it up, to grow hope, to grow in our help. And I showed you this chart from the book uh, Rising Hope from uh, Hellman, uh, Chan Hellman and uh, Casey Gwynn. And they, they describe hope like this, that you have this desirable goal that you want to reach and you have intentionality that you intend to do something about it and you have to find these pathways. Your, your hope is to finally get that degree. And so you start looking at pathways of how do I get there and you have that willpower, that mental ability to make the change and do these things. And, and they're, they're, they're quick to say that this is not a formula, this is not a recipe. Uh, and I agree with that. And that's the problem with some of the self-help books and just some of the self-help sermons and things like that, that we tend to think of it as these recipes or formulas that we just add water and we've got this, this hope, you know, and that's it. But that's not true. We know that's not true, that it's much more than that. And so before we move on to this, I think there are a few things we need to know about hope, uh, things that we should know or we will fall into total hopelessness and despair. Uh, some things we should know is that sometimes hope can feel like it is outmatched. Uh, most of us know the story of the Pandora's box, right? Pandora gets this box, and she, she's told never to open it. So what does she do? She opens it. The curiosity gets the better of her. And when she opens it, all the evil and all the disasters get flooded out onto the world, and so she shuts it really quickly. And the original story, I don't know if you know this or not, but the original story has this other voice in the box that says, let me out, let me out. And so she opens it, and it's the voice of hope. And it's a little female figure who is hope, and she takes up resident in people's hearts, supposedly. And it's kind of a, a good fable, actually. It kind of describes the situation that we look at the cruelty and the dominion and, and the dehumanization in the world, and we feel like hope is outmatched. It's beaten. It's small compared to everything else. And we kind of look at it. Yeah, the proportions are pretty accurate. But where it, what it gets wrong is that, that the, the, the disasters, the despair, the depression, the dehumanization, all that stuff doesn't get just dumped out because somebody opened a box. It gets, uh, gets out because, first of all, we decided we could, do, we could run the show better than God. And then it came as a series of multitude of thousands of thoughts and decisions and choices, and it just grew, it grew and grew and grew, and then we have, then we're, now we're just covered with despair and cruelty. And the other thing that gets wrong is that hope is not some little thing that sort of floats around to people's hearts. 
it too is a bunch of silver threads that kind of run through together in the midst of all that despair and, and depression and, and cruelty. And it too is based on decisions and things that we make. But sometimes it just feels like it's outmatched. You know, we can't, we can't keep up. Hope is a paradox. We should know that it's a paradox of accepting and refusing to accept. We accept we accept, or we refuse to accept, I'll put it this way first, we refuse to accept the way things are. We refuse to accept that. We don't want to, um, uh, we don't want to believe that this is, this is the way it's got to be, that the things are not supposed to be, and I refuse to accept it. And so we choose hope instead of this. We choose not to give up. We choose not to uh, allow these things to happen. We choose to try to, the, to not believe that life is fixed and unchangeable. We refuse to accept that, but we do accept, we do accept that people are valuable and they have worth, including you, that you have value and you have worth, and we accept that. We also accept that getting a nourishing hope is not easy, that it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. It's going to, we got to work at it. There's got to be stuff we can do, and we accept the fact that, that, that sometimes the outcome doesn't match what we want. And we have to accept that with peace. We have to accept that the fact that sometimes I've done all I can do and it still didn't pan out like I thought it would. That we do have to change our goals every now and then. Uh, as a kid, I've mentioned this before, as a kid, my dream and my hope was to be a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. And my friends and I, we would practice catching the balls on the out-of-bounds with our tiptoes in-bounds and that kind of stuff. Well, it came really clear that um, there was no pathway to that goal. <laughs> and I had no pathway, and there were no alternative pathways, so I had to change my goals a bit. And I have to accept that. Now, that's a silly example, but there are some serious things that just devastate us when we have to change the goal, and we have to adjust our desires to do that. Uh, hope takes the long view. Sometimes it crosses generations. It goes for on and on and on. And one of the places I really want to visit if we ever get back to Ireland, uh, the motherland, uh, is this place called, um, it's, it's called the New Grange. It's in eastern, eastern Ireland. And the, what's fascinating about this, this thing is 5,000 years old. And it was built by Stone Age farmers. And the amazing thing about it is they designed it so at the winter, winter uh, equinox, that the sun comes in and, and shines its light all the way through the corridor through this building. It's brilliant. That was built over a series of generations. And the hope of that was built over generation and generation. And sometimes that's what it is. We have these hopes, we have these goals and desires, but we have to realize that this is going to take maybe several generations for us to even know that this goal would ever accomplish. And Paul says that these things are eternal. In other words, faith, hope, and love will even have to last into eternity. And so we have to realize that, that maybe we don't get the hope and maybe we don't get the goal that we desired right now in this lifetime, but these things will last for eternity. And I wrote a little bit about this in the Connections letter this week, that faith is this, this unsettled confidence and trust in the God that has made himself known, that we know through Jesus Christ, that we trust him. And hope is this unsettled 
affirmative conviction that he will never leave or forsake us. And we think, well, this will last in the eternity. I mentioned in the letter that Sue and I were talking about this. Why do we need faith and hope in the future, in the eternal, in the new heaven and new earth? Why do we need faith and hope? And I finally thought that it's not, it's not more faith or more hope. It's deeper faith and deeper hope. That what makes me think that when I see Jesus face to face, I'm going to stop trusting him. That will go on for eternity. And what happens, what's the, why would I think that this God who created this eternal universe, that that hope will last for all eternity, that there will be more and more and more and more things to discover and to experience. And if that is, the, if that is hope that he will be with us and never leave us or forsake us, why would I think that would not happen in eternity? Of course it will. But we have to realize that the hope is sometimes, we have to take the long view of it. And, this, and, and Sue always has a, has a saying that she always talks about. When we ever talk about things that are not going right or something, she always says, the story's not over. It's not the end of the story yet. And that's what, that's what hope does. And finally, hope is a limited quantity. Nobody is hopeful all the time. And we have to realize that or we will fall into despair. There are times where we, if we want to lose hope, we will lose hope. It's just limited. There are times when, when uh, you just don't have any more willpower left. And maybe just for various reasons, overworking, exhaustion, poor diet, whatever, you, sometimes that willpower just leaves us. And it is a limited quantity. Nobody is hopeful all the time. And that can lead to despair. And if we're not aware of that, Hope can run out faster than we, than we want it to. It is a loss of hope. So the question is, what is the loss of hope? Sometimes hope just runs out. And most people will say, well, the opposite of hope is hopelessness. So I'm going to give you one more chart from Hellman and Gwen. And this is how they, this is how they picture it. That hope starts out, and when something changes, something is blocked or, some, or that we have to change the goal. You're not going to be the receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. And sometimes you will end up with rage. And he makes the comment, the psychologist, Chan, uh, Hellman, says that rage is the closest emotion to hope. And I looked at that and I thought, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. But then I started thinking about it and go, yeah, maybe he's got a point there. That hope has this, this desire to see something change. And he said, that's what, that's what anger is. He said, anger is not the problem. It's what we do with it. That's the problem. An abused child has every right to be angry. An abused wife has every right to be angry. We lose our job maybe for an unjust reason, and we have a right to be angry. It's what we do with it. And that can lead to despair where there's unable to think of any other solution. There's no other pathway. There's no other, uh, there's too many blocks in the pathway that I've chosen, and then that will lead to apathy. And their argument is that apathy is the opposite of hope. I would use another word. I would use powerlessness. Feeling like you have no power, you have no control over any of this. This is, to me, our struggle with hope, of feeling powerless 
and having no ability to do anything. And yes, it falls into apathy. Everywhere we have lived, there have been dangers of natural disasters. You know, I mean, in Texas and Iowa, it's tornadoes. And uh, in Latin America, it's volcanoes and earthquakes. And here, it's forest fires. And I remember one night, I think I might have shared this before, one night, um, I think I was in Dallas for a conference, and I was staying with my mom and stepdad, and Sue was in, still in Iowa, northwest Iowa, and they have tornadoes at least once a year. You will hear that siren once a year. And that means there's a tornado spotted near Orange City. And one night she calls me from the dark balcony of our house, which is kind of creepy in, its, in itself. It was kind of scary just to be down there in the, bal- in, in, the, in the basement. I said balcony, didn't I? Basement. In the basement, it was this dark basement, and it's kind of creepy. And she calls me and said, yeah, we're under a tornado warning, and I could hear the sirens over the phone which means they're, they're close by. And I've seen the destruction of tornadoes. I've seen towns completely wiped out uh, because of tornadoes. And so I'm sitting there listening, and then all of a sudden I lose phone contact. And so for probably, what, an hour maybe? Or maybe it's longer than that? I don't remember. I was totally powerless. I was in panic. I had in my mind the picture of what was happening to the house. I had a picture in my mind that the tornado was sweeping through Orange City and and ripping houses off the foundations. And that's what I had in mind. I was totally powerless and in despair. And there's not a thing I could do about it. Not a thing. Finally, somehow, phone service was recovered, and she was able to call and get through. And, you know, end of story. But it was a weird feeling of just not being any any power at all. And that happens when, you know, a child may reject everything we've ever taught them. And we start to question our own identity. Uh, It means um, when you feel strong one day and the next day you're lying in the hospital and knowing that your life will never be the same after that, that something happened. It's, uh, It's when the job disappears and the money runs out and there's not a thing you can do about it. Uh, There's no response. There's no hope. And so you're just powerless, and you don't know what to do. You're out of control. You you have no idea. And that's when we come face-to-face with our mortality. That's when we come face-to-face with our vulnerability of who we are. And that's when we come, I think, the scariest thing of all is having to look and see who we really are because everything has been stripped away. And... uh, My friend Rob tells me this all the time. Look in the mirror and see who you are. And he said that was a turning point for him of seeing who he is and who I am. And that is kind of scary. But that's the only thing we've got. And so it ends with apathy and this this hopelessness, this, this powerlessness just sort of weighs on your shoulder and the spirit is taxed uh, beyond belief. And all those pious cliches that we learned in Sunday school, all the stained glass window talk, it just all turns to dust. And we go, what's the use? What's the purpose? What in the world is God doing? And that's when we get hopeless and powerless. What good is hope? Everybody has stories of powerlessness. You and I, we all have power, stories of powerlessness some people seem to recover better than others and so my question this morning is how do they do that
How do we struggle with powerlessness when hope runs out? What is it that we can do? And this is what makes Christian hope distinct. This is what makes Christian hope different than all other hope. And you're going to be surprised to hear it. It's the gift of surrender. It's the gift of giving up. It's maybe the hardest thing to do uh, when we can't do anything about it. It's inevitable. And I may want to deny the change. I can maybe ignore it and think that it really didn't happen. Or I can find somebody to blame for it. And it might make me feel better for a second. But that is torturous thought. It's when we come and we can't admit that we've been beaten, that we've been overpowered, and we don't know what to do without it, that that relationship is over, that divorce is final, that diagnosis is correct, that the partner has died, the money is gone, the friends have moved on, they often withdraw, the house is sold, there's nothing we can do, can we go on breathing? Can we go on living? All we have to do to answer that is to open our Bibles. And the answer is yes, we can. We can go on breathing. We can go on living. The Bible is full of stories, full of stories of people finding themselves powerless and hopeless. And the good stories are about people who surrender, who turn it over and surrender. And that's the reason I wanted to read the story or hear the story of Jacob wrestling with God. It is perhaps one of my favorite, maybe my favorite story in the Old Testament. I love this story because it is so rich and so deep. Just a little background, Jacob, his life is going perfectly fine. Thank you very much. He is wealthy. He's got lots of uh, kids. Got, obviously, these are signs of God's blessing. But how did he get there? Well, he deceived his stupid brother twice. Once for the birthright, which made him the patriarch of the family and also the double inheritance. And he received the father's blessing, which made him the authority of the family. Well, then he ended up running away, and he meets a woman he falls in love with. But he gets tricked. The trickster gets tricked. And he marries two women, but he outsmarts his father-in-law and comes away really rich. And so he's on his way to enter into what would be the promised land, crossing the Jabbok River. And so he's there, but he's still got an obstacle to face. And that's his brother across the river with 400 men. Now, the last thing Jacob heard before he got there, before, the last thing he, he, before he left home, the last thing he heard Esau say was, uh, if I'm going to hunt Jacob down and I'm going to kill him. Now, what would Jacob be thinking? He's there on one side of the river, and on the other side is his brother who's vowed to kill him with 400 men. So what does Jacob do? What Jacob always does. Manipulates, tricks, deceives. He says, he sends his servants over and calls Esau the master and Jacob the servant, and then he sends his wife and kids over. Typical Jacob. And Jacob's there by himself. And this man comes and wrestles him. And we know that it's God. And that, this is a, a true story. I believe it to be true. But it's also a 
parable for the nation of Israel and for us. So they wrestle, and Jacob holds on to him because he realizes he will not triumph. He will not win this fight, so he holds on. And God touches his hip and dislocates it. And he says, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And so what does God do? Tell me your name. And, they, and Jacob has to come clean. He says, I'm Jacob, the heel grabber. I'm Jacob, the deceiver. He has to become who he is, and that's scary. I am Jacob, the heel grabber. And God gives him a new name. Jacob realized it's not time necessarily to do all the things he's been doing. It's time to become someone else new. And God gives him a new name. And he becomes a new man. But he walks with a limp. And I love that. That now he has to walk with a limp. Because he's been touched by God. He's gotten to the point, rock bottom. And the only thing he can do is surrender. And he has success because he walks with a limp. He knows his disability. He knows his, he's, he's, he's been touched by God. And he becomes a new person. I know this church very, very well. It was a home church for a while. And they hired a, um, a youth pastor. And um, he was very impressive. And he came with all these plans and, and um, um, just, you know, creative ideas. He's smart. He was sharp. He's kind of a cool guy. And his wife was a cool woman. I mean, she was a buyer for Neiman Marcus and, you know, big, rich department store in Dallas. And um, uh, he came on, and they hired him. And he only lasted two years. And I asked one of the youth leaders, uh, I asked uh, her, I said, why did, why did he only last two years? And she told me, he says, well, he brought all those ideas. He brought his plans. He brought all this stuff. It seemed like he brought everything except Jesus. He didn't bring Jesus. He wasn't walking with a limp. He was depending on his theological education, his coolness, you know. He, but he didn't bring Jesus. Part of my job at the, at, in Puebla, at the Puebla Seminary, was to match students with calls of churches and things. And I took that to heart when I would do that. And when a church was looking for somebody and I would evaluate a student, I would look at their transcript, their grades, and, you know, their gifting and, and their personality to see what it was matched with. But then I decided, no, what I need to look most for is does this person walk with a limp? Has this person been touched by God? That's how we get out of this, that it's time to become a new human being. It's time, there are times when we just surrender and we hold on to God. And that's what makes Christian hope distinct from all other hope. That when we reach that point of apathy and despair, when we reach that point where nothing else, that the end is inevitable, we cling to God and hold on until he touches us. And it may even be injurious. It may be even hurt. But we walk with God. And we know that we will get through. My point is all this, is that sometimes it is time to 
move on. Surrender is not passive. Surrender means moving on. It does not mean giving up. I want to be really clear about that. It's not giving up. It means moving on. It is not passive. Jacob still had to get up, cross the river, and talk to his brother. Israel still had to get up, cross the river, and enter Jericho. We still have to get up, cook the food, go to work, love our spouse, encourage our friends, listen to their, listen to their hurts. We still have to do all those things, but we do it with a limp. We do it because we've touched God. The struggle of the powerlessness is the struggle we face when hope runs out. And our only option is to cling, is to hold on to God, admit who we are, and then admit that it's time to become somebody new with a new name. That God has given you a new name. He has given you a new name as a daughter of God or a son of God. He has given you a new name, and that's who we become. And that's what we do when it's hopeless. That's what we do when it's, when the, it's inevitable and when we have no other pathway. We cling. We cling to him. And that's how we do it. You can find lots of stories in the Bible about this. And what I have found is I was looking through all the, the scriptures about hope, and looking at where it was found, and when it's used in a good way, it's always, always where God reveals himself as a bedrock of hope. That's where it's revealed, that God reveals himself as a bedrock of hope. And that's what makes Christian hope different than any other. We cling. We cling. And yeah, we may walk out of here with a limp. But we walk out of here being touched by God. And that's a huge difference. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story of, of clinging when all is hopeless, when all is gone. We also thank you for Tolkien for writing such a masterpiece. <laughs> and to show him what it looks like in a world that is much, much more like our own than we realize. We thank you for your goodness. In the name of Jesus, amen.